We are walking through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, kind of a thematic overview of the main themes of Scripture. And it's a lot to cover, and we're picking up speed as we go. But today, I want to talk to you about the wisdom of God and what it means to live in wisdom, to walk in wisdom, and to live our lives reflecting God's wisdom in everything that we do. And I found that one of the best ways to kind of capture a picture of biblical wisdom for us today is to talk about the power of normal. I've talked about this before, and inevitably somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, you know, Pastor, I appreciate what you said. I really like it. And usually that means there's, there's like a butt coming. Um, but there's no such thing as normal. And I get it. Like, if we're thinking of normal as, as this idea of life lived on this e- even plane where there's nothing good, nothing bad, it's just kind of normal, yeah, that's not really our typical existence. Our lives are kind of like this. High highs, low lows, somewhere in between, and it just keeps going. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to say that at the beginning so you don't have to come up to me later and say, I, I don't believe in normal. I, the kind of normal I want to talk about is the kind of normal that you feel when something breaks it. When something goes against it. You know that feeling when you're on the road? Hopefully you know this feeling. You're you're trying to obey the speed limit in general. Maybe some of you don't know this feeling. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to be a a cautious, conscientious, good driver. 5, 10 over, whatever, going with the, the speed of traffic. And then that car just whizzes by you, going like twice the speed of everybody else. And then you get this feeling in the pit of your stomach like, that's wrong. Or going along, following the flow of traffic, and you come up on somebody that's going half the speed limit. That drives me nuts. And and there's something in you that says, that's wrong. Now, why do we feel that's wrong? Well, because those things in general are against the law. Like, that's, that's breaking a law. It, it is wrong. But let's try another one. Maybe you've been going to this church or some other church for a long time. And you walk in some Sunday and you go to where you normally sit. You can see where I'm going with this. Somebody's there. Now, now ask yourself, do you not get just a, just a little bit, you know, you try to restrain it. You try to restrain the indignation and go, okay, it's not really my seed. It belongs to the Lord. They can take it. It's fine. But there's something in you because that's your normal seat. You're used to sitting there. Let me give you another example. Early on in my ministry, I went with a group, actually my wife and I, we went with a group to uh, Guatemala, a group of teens and adults. I remember vividly sitting in, in church. There were pews in this Guatemalan church. And, you know, we were trying to pay attention. I knew nothing of Spanish at all. I don't know Spanish. But I was trying to kind of generally follow along. I think somebody might have been interpreting a little bit for us. Um, but, but all of a sudden, our team was all on kind of one pew. And, and we all started doing this and looking behind us. And in my mind, I'm going, who's kicking the seat? Because I knew there were team members behind us, and I was kind of like, you know, guys, come on. Like, we're in church. You shouldn't be kicking the seat. And all of a sudden, this little, like, wave of chuckles went throughout the church. It was an earthquake. A very mild earthquake. 
I don't think anybody on the team thought, popping into our heads, oh, it's an earthquake. We all assumed somebody's kicking the seat. Why? Because earthquakes are not normal where we lived in Chicago. It's not normal here. I didn't have anything in my brain that would process what was going on as an earthquake. I had to come up with another reason. This is what I mean by the power of normal. We have certain sets of assumptions that we have accepted that color how we interpret things in the world, information we receive. Sometimes those things are correct and good. I had an interesting conversation with with my youngest daughter, Ainsley, the other day. She has a little stuffed animal. It's a pig with wings. I think it's in the shape of a football. It's weird. But somehow we got on the subject of when pigs fly. And she was like, why is that a saying? And so I had to explain to her, you wouldn't expect a pig to fly. So it was this idea of it doesn't make sense. It goes beyond what we expect. What we think of as normal, whether we're aware of it or not, strongly affects how we accept and interpret reality. So we need to ask ourselves, and this beginning begins to get to the heart of biblical wisdom. We need to ask ourselves, what defines normal to us? What is it that tells us what is normal, what should happen, what is right and what is wrong, and what makes sense of what's going on in the world? And the Bible has a whole section of literature that we're going to look at today that deals with wisdom. It's often referred to as wisdom literature, how to think correctly about how we live and about what's going on in the world. So if you're just joining us, we've gone through the creation. We went through the fall of Adam and Eve. We talked about the call of Abraham, God calling this people group, Abraham and his offspring, into a relationship. We looked at the rescue out of Egypt as they were enslaved and God saves them. He brought them to uh, the wilderness and gave them his law, including especially this idea of the tabernacle, this meeting place between God and his people, this dwelling place where God would be with them. And he called them to be different. And then we go through some more history and they enter the promised land and they're kind of faithful, but not entirely. And then we get into the time of the judges and it's absolute chaos. And then last week we looked at the first two kings, King Saul and King David. And now we need to break out of the historical literature for a moment. We're not going in order through the books of the Bible. I think it's kind of helpful. Because at some point, I want to make sure we talk about the wisdom literature. And the reason why I kind of put it here is that much of it is written by King David or his son Solomon. So it's kind of a fitting point in the historical overview to talk about this topic. So let's look very briefly at just an overview of of these five books uh, and what they're about. Very, very briefly, okay? The wisdom literature in the Old Testament is largely contained. There's smatterings of it throughout the Old Testament, but it's largely contained in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Psalms, or Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, depending on what you're used to. Job is very ancient. It's probably the earliest of these. It was either written in or at least is about the time of Abraham. So it goes way far back. And it talks about a righteous man, Job, who suffers horrible, terrible hardships. 
and, and we are told, we're given behind the scenes glimpse, these hardships are allowed by God. He is aware of it and, and purposefully allows it. And it deals with why do good people suffer? How do we trust God in that suffering? And at the end of the book, the last several chapters, it's just a reminder. God is God and we are not. And we need to trust him. Psalms is a very unique book. Sometimes it's not included in the people's list of the wisdom literature books. But I think it belongs there. It's basically a book of poems or hymns or songs, however you want to categorize them. It is written, did you know this? Psalms is actually written over a period of about a thousand years. There's a thousand years between the oldest psalm, which is written by Moses. If you ask most people who the author of the psalms is, they'll say, David. That's true for many of them, but not all of them. The oldest one is written by Moses. Um, the, the latest one, over a thousand years later, was written around the time of Jeremiah. Many of these psalms or hymns were used in public worship. Some are very personal. They show us people struggling with their faith, struggling with God, responding to the truth of who God is and what he's done. Psalm 1 shows us that the Psalms are about living life rooted and grounded in God, drawing up nourishment from him and making that the anchor point of our lives. The rest of the Psalms are outpourings from their hearts. Uh, Those who are following the Lord, seeking to live in relationship with him, some are happy. Some are very sad. Some have a lot of questions and doubt in them. But often, usually, there's this theme throughout of trusting God and following him. Proverbs collection of very short, kind of wise sayings that are easy to remember and recall. I think they're actually meant to be memorized and and to recall so that you can kind of chew on what wisdom is. Probably were meant to be used in an educational setting between a tutor and a child or a father and a son. To, to use to teach them. Ecclesiastes is often attributed to Solomon. It's more than likely that he wrote it, but the author just calls himself the teacher. The teacher. And it's an essay of sorts on trying to find meaning in life. And the author comes back to say, everything is meaningless under the sun except, except trusting in the Lord. And then Song of Songs is a poetry, uh, it's a poem about Uh, exploring the love between a husband and a wife. But rather than go into depth on each one of these books, I want to look at the big picture of what is wisdom. And so we need to start at the beginning. The beginning of wisdom. How do we begin to understand what wisdom is? And the easiest way to do that is actually to, to start by getting a good definition. So here's my definition of biblical wisdom. Wisdom is thinking and living correctly. Thinking and living correctly. You cannot separate those two things. It's not just being super smart and knowing facts and being able to spout those off. It's also not just practical living. It is proper thinking lived out in proper living. Now, we need to look at the wisdom of God because how are we going to define what proper thinking and proper living is? If there is a God who created us, if there is a God who has a plan for us and wants a relationship with us, then our proper thinking and our proper living must be defined according to God's wisdom and who he is. Think about the first 
four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Scripture starts with a truth. There is a God. Before everything else, there is a God. The God who creates all things. And so we have to start with an understanding that there is a God. That's, that's a basic starting point of wisdom, but it's not enough. We have to go further. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, we read that the demons believe in God. It doesn't help them. So we have to go a little bit further. Okay, you have some knowledge, a little bit of understanding. What do we do with that? The book of Proverbs is very helpful here. At the beginning, the author is kind of laying out an overview of what he is writing and why. And, and after the first six verses of just kind of some general statements about what the, why he's writing this, uh, we have this verse here in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom and knowledge are often used interchangeably in Scripture, so we need to be careful. When you read knowledge, it may also include wisdom and vice versa. Again, they don't separate knowing and doing. You had to do both. But Proverbs 9.10 makes this even more obvious. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. If you want to think and live correctly, you have to come to terms with the fear of the Lord. This does not preach well in our modern society. What are we talking about with fear? 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, Pastor Dave, it's really not about fear. Okay, but we still have to wrestle with Proverbs because all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. So how do we wrestle with these two things together? We are taught to fear the Lord, and yet we are also taught that Fear is, is not to be a part of our love for the Lord. What James is taught, or I'm sorry, what John is talking about in that letter is a fear of punishment. He's talking about this constant fear that God is out to get us and to punish us in Christ because we are forgiven, just as the, the praise team just sang in that, it, um, what's the name of the song? It was finished upon the cross. Our sins are paid for. We don't have to be afraid. I preached several years ago about the Reformation and Martin Luther. And I was so struck by Martin Luther's fear. Before he really became a Christian, he was a very devout Catholic. But he lived in constant fear. Had he done enough? And he would go to confession for hours, leave confession, and immediately think, oh, I forgot to say something. I've got to go back or I'm going to hell. And then he began to really, truly pour over Scripture and realize he did not need to be afraid in that way. But there is a proper way. And this is what Proverbs is talking about. There is a proper way and a necessary way to fear the Lord. And I am afraid as modern, no pun intended, but as modern Christians, I fear that we have lost the sense of true godly fear. 
We emphasize experience. We emphasize joy coming into his presence and just being happy and jumping up and down. I know maybe you guys don't do that here, but... And there's a time and a place for that. That is right and proper in its setting. But there's also a time for true, holy, godly fear of the Lord. So let's look at a few places where we see this. Because all of this falls under the idea that the being truly and properly uh, in relationship with God and understanding the fear of the Lord is to recognize that God is in control of all things. He determines what is right or wrong, or another way to say that, going back to the intro, is he is the one who truly controls normal. He sets normal, what is right and what is wrong. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, it's a very interesting passage here in the giving of the law. We talked about that several weeks ago. Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. There, see, don't be afraid. Get rid of fear. Do not be afraid God has come to test you so that what? The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. What? Don't be afraid so that you can be afraid. Because they're looking at their situation. Wandering in the wilderness, people are out to get them, and they're terrified of that. And Moses is saying, and God is saying through Moses, don't fear that. But then he says, put your eyes on me. Because God has the greater power. They're fearing the wrong thing. This is not just an Old Testament idea. There's a wonderful passage in Mark chapter 4 where the disciples are on a boat and Jesus is sleeping. You remember this story? It's a great Sunday school kids story. Jesus is sleeping in the front. They're on a boat. And all of a sudden, a huge storm comes up. And these guys, that many of them made their living as fishermen, they're terrified. And man, when people that are on the water day in and day out think that they're about to die, you better be a little scared because they know what they're talking about. And they're terrified. Jesus gets up and he calms the wind and the waves. In John chapter 4, verse 40 and 41, he says to them, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then look at how the disciples respond. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Now again, understand, first they're afraid of the situation. The boat's going to sink. We're going to capsize. This is horrible. And that's true. All of that is worthy of fear to an extent. But now they realize that there is a greater power than the storm. And that is Jesus Christ. And he's right there with them. And their attention is pulled off the storm and put on the Son of God. This is an important aspect of understanding what it means to fear the Lord. What we fear most is evidence of what we believe has the most power in our lives. Let me say that again. What we fear most, what we fret about, what we're concerned about, what we're complaining about, is evidence of what we think has the most power in our lives. My most vivid memory that helps me to understand this is when I was in kindergarten or first grade. I've shared this story before, 
but it was it was recess and we were outside and we got called to come in. And at that moment, I had put my hand up on whatever piece of equipment I was on and I was about ready to crawl out of it to follow the teacher in. And at the same moment that the teacher says, come in for recess, a bee landed on my hand. And as every kindergartner or first grader knows, you don't move when a bee lands on you. Or you might die. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. Kids, you won't. Let's, like, that's not a thing. I, I, it could be. Talk to your parents. But don't have time for that. But in my mind, I remember the inner turmoil. I know this sounds weird, but I do. I remember thinking, I've got to go in. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't go in and listen to the teacher. But if I move, I could die. So which one do you think I obeyed? And I'll tell you this. I'll give you a hint. I obeyed the one I was more afraid of. And it was not the teacher. I stayed there until that bee of his own free will decided to take off. And then I went in a little bit late for recess. I don't remember if I got in trouble or not. I'm sure it happened pretty quick. But think about that. What we are most afraid of will dictate what we obey. That's terrifying and not in a good way. Oswald Chambers says this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. There's a lot of truth to that. The fear of the Lord is the appropriate response to true knowledge of God. It's an understanding that we live our lives in the presence of God whose holiness, grace, love, mercy, and even wrath and his absolute sovereignty are beyond our comprehension and certainly beyond our control. God is God. We are not. This is the beginning of wisdom. Everything in the world was created by God and God has power over it. God sovereignly rules over all things. He has a plan that started in creation, continues through the Old Testament, all the way to the manger and the cross and the empty tomb and to the coming of Jesus Christ. God is in control. And we must live this way. We must live in this recognition that He is God and we are not. And the Bible calls that appropriately a proper fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. But then we have to understand that we have to put it in action. We have to put it in motion. The Bible describes uh, describes wisdom as a way, a way of life, a way of walking, the steps that we take day in and day out. The Bible often uses this image of two ways. There's the way of the Lord, trusting Him, acknowledging Him as God, living in obedience to him. And then there's any other way. Those are the two ways in scripture. Our world wants to give us a menu saying there's lots of different ways. The Bible boils it down to the absolute basics. There are two ways. There's God's way and anything else. There is no middle ground. If we look back at the beginning of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's your two ways. It is reasonable 
and acknowledging that there is a God who created all things. It makes sense. It is wise to live and acknowledge the truth of who God is. It is foolish to act as if there is no God and to despise the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. In Proverbs, these two ways are personified as two women. It's such a beautiful picture because Proverbs is, is, again, it's mostly written to kind of a context of a tutor or a father and son. And so you can imagine a, a young man, a teenager, think about what's on his mind. And God's using a message that's going to get through to a young man. Let's think about two women here. And one of them, the woman Folly, is seductively calling out on the street corners. Hey, come here. I know you're walking that way, but let's, let's go down this alleyway. Let's, let's take a shortcut. Nothing bad will happen. It's no big deal. And the woman Folly cries out, getting the young man to go down questionable alleyways and do disgraceful things. The woman wisdom is also personified as crying out on the street corners. Calling out to anyone who will listen. And invites people to learn the truth of who God is. And to live rightly trusting in who God is. These two ways, these two paths really emphasize that wisdom's not just what we know. It's not just what we think. It's not about just having a bunch of biblical knowledge up here. I have met a lot of well-meaning Christians who know their Bible backwards and forwards. But by looking at their life and the way they treat people, I would not call them wise. Biblical wisdom is knowledge in motion. I've known a lot of people that live well. They're kind, they're good, but they ignore the fact that they were created by a God who loves them and has a plan for them and sent his son to die for them. And the Bible says as good as that, might, that life might look, it is foolishness. This talks about this direction of our lives. Psalm chapter 1, is a, a, or actually Psalm 1, is a great uh, example of this. Psalm 1 begins with these first two verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked. And then later in verse 2, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And it causes us to ask this question. What direction am I living? How am I walking? How am I stepping day in and day out? Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 says, The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Do you hear these two ways that are laid out? And God is calling us, inviting us, like the woman wisdom, trust me. Follow me. I know what is right and true. These are the two ways. There's God's way and any other way. Any other way. The way of acknowledging who God is and trusting him includes appropriately fearing him. Acknowledging his authority and his power and his sovereignty. And biblical wisdom causes us to rightly question, which way am I going? And I don't think we ask that question enough. And I think that's because we're just on to the next thing, saying, God, bless this. I'm here. This is going on. Bless me. And God is saying, stop. Turn your eyes toward me. Trust 
me? Are we living in faith and following God? Or are we living foolishly trusting anything else? Let's go back to where we started and the idea of normal. What I mean again by this is that normal is this idea of what we accept as normal, what we accept as true and regular and what we expect. Biblical wisdom challenges this. And the problem that I think so often we encounter is that most of us don't even think about it. So when we're challenged by biblical wisdom, we think, no big deal. I don't need this. I'm good. Biblical wisdom causes us to rethink what we have accepted as normal and natural. The way the world works. And God's word through his wisdom comes in and challenges us to think about this and to trust in the Lord and change how we live. Or, or we can ignore it and we can live in folly. I said earlier that wisdom is thinking and living correctly. I think to be accurate, we have to add one more thing to that. Biblical wisdom is thinking and living correctly in relationship to God. There cannot be any true wisdom without a true relationship with God. I'm not saying nobody else knows anything. I'm not saying non-Christians are stupid. There are very smart people out there. And I'm not saying as Christians, we've got it all together and we know all there is to know. We still have a lot to learn. But there can be no correct living and correct thinking without an acceptance that there is a God who created me. And wants a relationship with me. And our actions, like Martin Luther, will never be enough. We need more. I've called this series Focal Point because we're looking at how everything in Scripture points ahead to a focal point, the focal point of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do you see it there? Do you see the need to trust the Lord, to be made right in our relationship with the Lord, to truly understand what biblical wisdom is? And do you see that God's wisdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is out of sync? It is abnormal to this world. And so they struggle, and we all were there once, and maybe you're still there. We struggle to accept it because it doesn't match what we assume is normal. Normal in our world is, I got this. I'm in charge. I make my own choices. I do what I want. 
And the gospel comes along and says, you're headed toward death. You're lost in sin. But the God of the universe loved you enough to send your son, his son to die on the cross to save you from your sins. And the world cries foolish. And those that are saved by Jesus Christ say, I get it. I get it now. The great fulfillment of all biblical wisdom is Jesus Christ. He is the knowledge of God, the revelation of who he is. He is the solution to our greatest problem by giving us salvation. He is the new way to live in a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the great wisdom of God. So let me close with this question. Are you living wisely? Are you living wisely? Are you acknowledging that God is God and you are not? Are you living appropriately in that relationship with him that you have a proper understanding that he is great and powerful? Are you living in faith, trusting him? And ultimately, have you accepted Christ as your savior? Because the drowning person who will not accept someone saving them is foolish. And the sinner who will not accept the God of the universe giving his son on the cross to save them is foolish. We need wisdom today. We've always needed wisdom. Human history, biblical history, is a testimony to the folly of sinful humanity. But the Bible also tells us that God loves us. And he reveals to us his wisdom and calls us to follow I encourage you to take time to read through some of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Read Job, especially the last couple chapters, if you're thinking much of yourself. Read Ecclesiastes if you think there's some hope out there in the world that you're going to find apart from the Lord. Read the Proverbs if you're looking at how to just walk day in and day out in relationship with the Lord. Read the Psalms if you're going through difficulties or joys and you want to hear how others have gone through these things before you. But in all things, live in right relationship with God, trusting Him and walking in step with where He leads. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so easily drawn to foolishness. And our kind of foolishness, this sinful foolishness, is one that masquerades is profound wisdom and knowledge. And so we confess today, Father, that too often we think we are right and we fail to look to you. And I pray, Father, that you would turn our eyes toward you. That you would shape how we think and how we feel. You would shape how we interpret what we receive in this world and the things we experience and the knowledge that is, is, is sort of pushed upon us. And that the lens of what is normal and right and just and true in our lives and in our hearts would be informed by your wisdom from your word, the revelation of who you are. And God, I pray if there's anyone here today that fights against that in their life, may they surrender to you. And I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't received your son as their savior, may today be the day that their eyes could be opened and the great wisdom that you give to us in scripture can begin to come alive to them.
and they could see it to be true through the power of your Spirit's work in their hearts and minds. And for the rest of us, Father, may we live as testimonies of that, sometimes often looking strange and weird and foolish to this world because we are trusting you. Because we know you are God and we are not. And we will live in appropriate relationship and obedience and trust and faith and worship to you. In your name we pray. Amen.